the Slaughter in May podcast. So hello and welcome to our podcast. Uh, today we're talking about sale and leaseback transactions. I am Jane Edward. I am a real estate partner at Slaughter and May and I'm delighted to be joined by Nick Compton and Mike Evans from JLL. Nick, Mike, would you like to briefly introduce yourselves, please? Thank you, Jane. It's uh, Nick here. Uh, I'm Nick Compton. I lead a JLL's corporate capital markets business across the EMEA region. And it's a team of people that specialise in raising capital for corporates from their assets. So, so we, we spend a lot of our time preparing assets for sale and leasebacks. Great. Thank you. And Mike? Yeah, I'm Mike Evans. Uh, I'm a director in the corporate capital markets team. Been with JLL for 13 years. Um, I'm a chartered accountant by profession. So I get involved in the financial and accounting side of property transactions. And um, IFRS 16 is a bit of a specialist subject for me. Great. Well, we'll come on to that shortly. Thank you very much, both of you, for joining me today. Um, I might start, please, by asking you, Nick, about what the numbers looked like last year, 2019, and then, of course, this year as we all struggle with, with COVID-19. What are the numbers looked like in terms of transaction levels in, in this sector? Uh, well, we've been tracking the, the subset of the market for the last decade of all corporate asset sales across uh, Europe, Middle East and Africa. Uh, and st- there's been a steady increase in activity during that decade. And last year, there was a particularly notable uptick and ultimately leading to a, a total of around 23 billion euros, um, which is a record year over the data set that we have, reflecting a whole range of, of things that have become more established over time. And, and what do you think explains that increase in, in the numbers and that steady increase over the last decade? I think there are a number of uh, notable characteristics in, in the data set that we can see, uh, and I'll perhaps pull out some of the ones that are most significant. The big change for us is that you can see that assets are being sold more in portfolios rather than individually. And, and to some degree, these factors overlap in that one of the other big characteristics uh, that we can see is the presence of investors that are willing to invest in multiple countries at the same time. So if you you can see that those investors are enabling transactions to take place that would otherwise perhaps have had to take place just in one country because they're willing to invest across a whole region. Companies that own portfolios of assets are able to do one large transaction rather than a series of smaller ones. And I think that's a big factor. Also, those investors and particularly a, a subset of those investors are particularly interested in specialist assets. So assets that perhaps previously might have been out of scope, like manufacturing sites or research campuses, are increasingly becoming transactable because there are investors that are hunting for those kind of critical assets. So that, that's also been a factor. Um, and I guess the sheer weight of capital pursuing industrial and logistics property has, to some degree, driven corporates to, to exploit that and put those assets into the market. Yeah, yeah. And to what extent has IRS 16 affected those numbers? Well, it's interesting, really, because I think we would have expected that, you know, in the first year of IFRS 16 being implemented, we would have expected the numbers to fall. We, you know, the idea was that 
companies would probably prefer to own than to lease. But as Nick just described, the numbers have increased. And I think there's a couple of things around that. I think that companies still look at sale and leasebacks and and corporate uh, disposals as an alternative source of capital raising, you know, to traditional sources of debt and equity. A number of the transactions are also with private equity owned firms and and typically those organizations are less driven by accounting and much more driven by cash and so you know perhaps they are uh, doing sell and leasebacks to pay down uh, debt or to take money out of the business and then I think a third area is a feature of the uh, corporate uh, disposals this year or, or in 2020 has been that a number of them are non-core assets. So uh, headquarters that companies are putting a two-year sale and lease back on and exiting. And in those cases, you know, the accounting rules are really make very little difference. So, yeah, it's really interesting that actually the numbers have risen in spite of IFRS 16. Yeah, yeah. And certainly we, we are seeing in practice a mix of different types of transactions which would qualify as a, a sale and lease back, you know, so different lengths of leases, different terms of leases. And as you say, some very short term leases intended effectively as an exit strategy and some much you know longer institutional investment type products that are created for that market. Um, are you similarly seeing a range of interest um, from investors in different types of products? Uh, yes, and I think um, that that's perhaps one of the most notable changes between the activity last year and this year. Is last year there was a there was a great deal more driven by the level of M and A activity in the corporate marketplace, with private equity investors particularly being uh, very busy, and that drove quite a lot of transactions that were driven purely by capital raising to refinance post-acquisition. In, in this year, the, the the market's been characterised by two quite different strategies. One is a strategy primarily focused on capital raising, and the second is a strategy driven by the crisis's, the crisis's impact on corporate's um, footprint needs. And as corporates are trying to figure out what they need for the future, where they need it, and what form they need it, in, particularly in terms of offices, that's that's having a corresponding impact on office assets and whether they choose to continue to hold those. So the sales in those 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 circumstances are likely to be short term. But the vast bulk of the transactional activity we've seen this year, certainly early in the crisis, was driven by challenging equity and debt markets where uh, capital that could be released from property was was quite was seen to be quite a good alternative uh, to those other sources of capital yeah yeah challenging markets to borrow sort of otherwise and also a real need for for capital coming into the business in the absence of revenue in various sectors such was the distress of course of covid-19 yes we've seen we've seen the same and what about say ground rent transactions something that we've seen is ground rent transactions actually sitting alongside a debt package on an acquisition um so effectively providing additional equity alongside additional debt 
as acquisition finance at the same time as maybe completing an M&A deal? Do you see those sort of packaged up portfolio transactions often? And do you think if so, that they, they, they will continue post COVID? Yes, I think they will. I, I think it's it's uh, a solution that's quite specific to circumstances. So it, it certainly won't necessarily be applicable in every case, but it, for certain types of transactions, perhaps where you have a large number of quite similar assets, so potentially a, for perhaps a distribution network, for example, or or a care homes portfolio, some some portfolio that has similar characteristics where also a client has a desire to retain um, a high degree of control over what happens to those assets into the future, then I think ground rents might might appeal. But obviously, the the other side of the ground rent equation is that they don't raise as much capital as a, a more traditional form of sale and leaseback. So for clients that are primarily driven by capital, uh, ground rents might not be the right solution for them. Uh, but, but certainly as part of the portfolio of options that we, we see clients considering yeah and back to covid inevitably if we may for for a while what have you seen in terms of the impact of the various government support packages which have been offered what impact have they had on on the market and on demand and supply well i think we we see things um quite often depending on who we're working with on a global basis so quite a few of our clients are supported by initiatives that are not just UK government but but governments in other countries where they operate and it's clear that to some degree and in certain cases there are government interventions that have been so um, supportive that an intention to raise capital from a sale and lease back has become less necessary because the the state the level of state support has essentially um, supplanted that and become more more important. So we have seen situations this year where packages have been readied for market on a sale and leaseback basis, but those have been put on hold whilst they they use the the state support that they have available in different countries as a preference. So that that's a, that's one example. Uh, Mike, maybe you have other examples. Well, I think as, um, as as Jen was saying earlier, you know, activity for companies is is fallen, and I think companies are generally following defensive strategies. I was looking at a, a CFO study uh, issued recently where the top three priorities for CFOs in the UK is reducing costs, increasing cash flow, and reducing leverage, and. You know, I think when companies are looking at their, their property portfolio, they're, they're probably looking at, given the impact of COVID, they can actually reduce their overall demand. There's probably some properties that they can dispose of if they own them, perhaps on short-term sale and leasebacks. And then for their core properties, maybe there is an opportunity to monetize them and raise capital from them. As Nick was saying, we've seen a variety of companies. We've done a number of feasibility studies where companies are looking at the range of options across their portfolio in terms of raising capital from property, whilst also at the same time pursuing other potential capital raising avenues, such as the issuance of debt. And, and, and you know, they're going to choose whatever is the best option for them at that point in time. Um, and so... You know, we've we've seen some um, potential transactions 
put on hold and others, you, you know, given the green light. Yeah. And, and just to add, I, I think it's reasonably likely that some transactions will perhaps wait until uh, Q1, Q2 next year, both because there's a perception that the market perhaps might be a bit more, more stable at that point, but it also that the level of state intervention, state support might start um, being reduced at that point. So it's possible that corporates will think actually it's better to hold those and lease back options for a point where we might need those to replace support that is being removed by the state at the time. Um, so I think there's there's a there's a sense in some cases that that 2021 might be uh, also quite a busy year for for asset transactions. I mean I think the numbers show for this year so far in H1 2020. Um, we're we're looking at about uh, 7.6 billion euros across the region, which compares quite similarly to other years, where typically the first half of the year is is uh, a quarter part of the year compared to the second half, particularly the the, the last quarter, which is traditionally the busiest. Um, so so far this year, and it's partly because of a lag from 2019, the the numbers look quite similar to to, a, to an average year. Which is good. Which is good. And I, and I was interested earlier in your in your comment that there are more sort of perhaps niche sectors or, or niche niche asset types coming through as potential candidates for sale and leaseback transactions. Um, and and in, increasingly specialised landlords looking at these more complex different assets and seeing the value there. So you mentioned as, as an example manufacturing. Perhaps you could you could talk about that, Nick, and the challenges of valuing those more. Those different types of assets. Uh, yeah, manufacturing is is a is an asset category that is still quite often held uh, as a freehold or as, or as owned by corporates. So, where corporates have often already sold their more generic assets, so so the assets that they have to to uh, consider for a same leaseback are often left to just the specialist ones. So. If there's a potential solution for those, that gives them a new angle for for capital raising. Um, but you do raise an interesting point that obviously manufacturing sites generally are specialised, so they they don't have a great deal of market evidence to to back up uh, rental levels. But they also do quite well suit other forms of sale and leaseback, such as uh, credit tenant leases. So where where we have clients with strong credits, it's possible to do transactions where where the rent doesn't have to be quite so so linked to the market and the value of the transaction is more driven by the length of the lease and the quality of the credit of the tenant. Um, so I think that, that, that's certainly something we're, we're looking at for manufacturing assets. Obviously, the underlying value of the property is also supporting that. Um, and because of the strength of the logistics and uh, distribution market, the the underlying land value of manufacturing assets is quite often supported by um, that that level of demand. So, in the event of default, the 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 recourse is back to logistics and uh, distribution as a as a redevelopment opportunity. So that's that's also helping. But I, I think one of the other limiting factors of of manufacturing assets being sold has been a concern of loss of operational flexibility. So obviously, manufacturing needs frequent changes of of processes, uh, an investment in new new buildings and new structures, new new process equipment. 
but these specialist investors are very willing to grant the operational flexibility that that tenants need so that that's been eliminated really as a as a cause for for concern yeah yeah and i guess as you say tenant covenant is is key there but also the importance of that asset strategically to the wider business because clearly if you know a group depends on its key manufacturing facility to supply perhaps a number of products or product lines then the, the you know the impact of that going under would be huge beyond just the the relevant tenant on that lease so so that gives i guess the investors some comfort that um the rent is likely to be paid i i think that's right and the the, the there's definitely a a subset of the investment community that uses the level of criticality as a means to underwrite the assets in their approach to pricing so uh yeah and examples would be uh, automotive car plants car assembly plants that kind of property where the the cost of replacement um and the visibility of those large um companies to where they manufacture and their supply chain it is it's relatively easy to see the degree to which a particular asset is critical to that company's ongoing success so that's certainly something that uh is scrutinised, and I think also the same is true of um, R and D property, and that that's a sector that has shown huge amounts of demand from investors, which is also very costly and uh, time consuming to replace uh, and commission. So it's again re- relatively easy to see levels of criticality with those asset categories uh, for for investors. Yeah. And what about the much lambasted retail sector? I mean, we have seen a lot of activity, haven't we, particularly in relation to supermarkets? Yeah, the retail sector has been a real uh, sort of almost like a polarised uh, world in that the, the grocers, the supermarket sector has been uh, obviously had a, had a, has, has almost thrived during the crisis. It's, it's been seen to almost be a critical level of critical infrastructure to the health of the country so they've done pretty well to continue to supply everyone with food during the crisis and they the businesses have become have economically um gone through the crisis with um significant strength and at the same time you've seen an increase in uh sale and leaseback activity not just in the uk but across europe of supermarkets selling both their 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 stores but also their supply chain and distribution buildings and i think that's partly because they're whilst they've got through the crisis uh reasonably unscathed consumer habits have long-term consumer habits have changed and there is a need to invest significant capital in in modernizing store networks so one of the reasons supermarkets have been unlocking capital from property is to to release cash to invest in in modernizing their stores repositioning them repurposing them bringing in third-party occupiers that kind of thing Uh, but the other end of the retail spectrum the high street retail uh, area has also been quite active with selling leasebacks but that's partly been driven by just a need to raise capital to to invest back in the business Uh, we've seen a few examples of those i think on the um, on the other side of the retail market i think there's sort of interesting developments there really um i think actually given the change in pricing of high street retail it's post covid i think we could see some occupiers who were perhaps financially stronger looking at buying in some of their 
assets because because they are cheaper and um, because they're on balance sheets anyway, perhaps they may as well buy them. So I think that's something we could see in the future. I think the other area that is going to be interesting to see how it develops is whether turnover leases uh, take off. We're seeing some landlords beginning to create turnover funds. And and I think that a lot of retailers may want to pursue that route because it's a way of sharing some of the risk with their landlords. Um, but also, uh, from an IFRS 16 standpoint, it's significantly beneficial because really it's only the base level of the rental that comes on balance sheet, uh, not the turnover element. So there's some potentially accounting benefits of turnover leases as well. Interesting, because we are definitely seeing those in the market. It's just a question, I guess, of how they can be accommodated into sale and leaseback type planning and continue. I think just concluding then, um, Mike and Nick, what are your sort of hottest predictions for the next six, 12 months? Hopefully post-COVID, we will all keep our fingers crossed. Where do you see this particular market going? I think it's uh, we, we'll see more specialist assets coming to the market on a sale and leaseback basis. I think the the logistics supply chain properties will continue to be strong, um, and our you know our, our specialists in those sectors are reporting values that are now higher than going into the crisis in some cases. So that 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 market I think will continue to strive to thrive. I think the office market is perhaps the one which will take time to really figure out because corporates are only partly away along their journey uh, of figuring out what footprint requirements they have for the future, where they where they should be and in what form. So I think it's going to be a real, really interesting time to, to, to be in the market, um, seeing how corporates react to uh, the post-COVID world. Yeah, and I think perhaps in that office market, I I think you could see a larger number of non-core properties coming to market as uh, as office occupiers downsize their portfolios. I I think we could see that happening. But also where they have core properties, actually using the strength of the market to raise capital to improve liquidity. Mm. Oh, thank you. Let's hope some interesting and very active and busy times ahead. So thank you so much for joining joining me today, Nick and Mike. Thank you very much. For more information on this topic or to hear our other podcasts, please visit www.slaughterandmay.com. You can also subscribe to the Slaughter and May podcast on iTunes or Google Play.